Welcome to Dr. Cindy Speaks. Regular musings and reflections on politics, current events, and life as a congressional candidate. Dr. Cindy Banyer is a mom and small business owner fighting for our water, our health, our community. She's running for the people of Southwest Florida, trying to flip Florida 19 from red to blue. Listen as she speaks truth to power and gets real about being a mom and a candidate. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Cindy Banyer here for Dr. Cindy Speaks. Thank you so much for joining us here today. It is April. I'm sorry, it's not April anymore. It's May, May 18th, 2020. And you know, it's a bit of a time warp here sometimes living in the era of coronavirus. But um, I'm so happy to be here with you today. So I am Dr. Cindy Banyi, like I said, and I'm a mom and small business owner fighting for our water, our health, and our community. I'm running for Congress here in Southwest Florida, Congressional District 19, and that runs all the way coastal Southwest Florida, Boca Grande down to Marco Island. So we are having a rainy day here today in Fort Myers, where I am based, and it is going to be uh, a little bit of a soggy day for us here, which is going to be good overall, I think, for our region. We've been in uh, drought-like conditions, and it's going. it's been a very dry time coming out of the end of the dry season for us. And we've had a lot of uh, wildfires, brush fires spinning up here, some particularly uh, strong ones that ended up with some homes being destroyed in my guest district here coming up. And as soon as she calls in, we're going to go ahead and let her on to speak with us. I'm so excited to have her with us. But um, so the rain is, is a good thing for us here. It's uh, it's a bad thing if you kind of look at it in terms of where we are with hurricane season coming upon us starting on June 1st. And I tweeted about this uh, yesterday, I believe, letting everybody know just get ready. You're on notice. June 1st is the beginning of hurricane season. So we have to start to prepare. We cannot just, you know, let one calamity lead to another, right? So I see that she is ready. So I have my guest here, uh, Maureen Porras. She's a candidate for Florida State Representative District 105. She's got some exciting things to share with us. So I'm going to go ahead and get her connected with us. So hello, Maureen. Hi, Cindy. How are you? I Cindy cannot hear you. Let me see if that is my own fault here for a moment. Hello, Maureen. Yes. Cindy, oh, can you I can hear you. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Uh, my apologies. I had it configured. I just came off of a debate this morning oh. that held uh, by Wink News here against my uh, Democratic uh, opponent here in District 19. And so I had my volume way down, so I reduced the feedback. So, <laughs> so good thing I thought of thinking that. But anyway, thank you so much for joining us here, Maureen. Um, it's exciting to have two uh, women here today running to represent 
people in the state of Florida and do some good work that we know that uh, a woman's touch can be valuable in. But I would like for you to start off by just introducing yourself, um, who you are and where you're running, what's going on. Just give us the, the brief intro here to you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you very much for um, having me on. I really do look forward to our conversation today. So my name is Maureen Porras, and I am a candidate for state representative in District 105. Um, so that district is very unique. It's a very geographically large district. It, st it stretches all the way from um, Broward County through Miami-Dade County and all the way to um, parts of Collier County, including Golden Gates. Um, and Naples um, Manor. So I am um, an immigration attorney. I have been providing immigration legal services for over 11 years. I am currently the managing attorney and director of immigration legal services for a global nonprofit called Churchfold Service. And what we do is we provide um, immigration and refugee services to um, um, individuals that come into the U.S. here. And I actually filed to run in this district um, back in November. Um, and, you know, that decision was not made very lightly. It was after um, spending the last four years um, attempting to defend, um, you know, one of the most vulnerable populations here in South Florida, which is immigrants, um, and just seeing how difficult and challenging it was and, and, you know, just trying to keep up with all the anti-immigration legislation that um, really was was coming out every week. It, it was hard to keep up and, um, you know, just doing our best to um, afford immigrants basic human rights and, you know, just to defend families from um, separation and and just, you know, doing our best um, to help the community. Uh, I, I mean, at one point, you know, I was almost arrested for representing a client before ICE. And honestly, that's when I said, I, I've had enough. I think that really the best way to um, defend not just immigrants, but just anyone against hurtful policies is to um, not allow them to become policy in the first place. And in order to do that, we need legislators that will safeguard our individual rights and that will really put the best interests of the communities first. And, um, you know, again, my decision to run was based on my years of, of experience working with the community and, and defending our community from all these different um, harmful policies. And here I am. Well, and here you are. I'm so thankful we are uh, to have you here. I appreciate you telling us about yourself and your background. And just so everybody can know a little bit about how Maureen and I are connected. So Maureen's district is like right next to the edge of the Collier component of District 19. So we have been together on several candidate, you know, forum mm -hmm. type of things where we're, you know, speaking particularly to Collier Democratic groups. And, um, you know, we really just thought like, hey, let's get together and have a conversation about women running in this district. So this is why our, this district, this area. And so that's why we had decided to come together. And I'd seen Maureen speak on several occasions. And it was just very impressive and refreshing to see a woman 
who is poised and knowledgeable and passionate about her area of work put herself out there to be a representative for the people. And just recently, if I'm going to go ahead and give you some additional props here, Maureen, you got a very, very fantastic endorsement, didn't you? I did. I was actually recently endorsed by um, Ruthless Florida, which is um, an organization that helps recruit and also um, elect pro-choice Democratic women to the state legislature. And that was a huge, huge honor. I, you know, I'm extremely humbled. Um, but and we definitely do have a good opportunity, not just in um, District 105, but also um, on the congressional level to elect a pro-choice Democratic woman to the seats that we're both running for. Um, and so, yeah, that, and, you know, and my latest endorsement was actually from um, one of our state um, senators, um, uh, Senator Annette Tadeo. She is actually um, the, Demo- the Miami-Dade Democratic Party's um, uh, committee chairwoman. And yeah, and so, you know, when I first filed, I also received the endorsement of State Senator Oscar Brannon. And so now I have the two, um, the endorsements of the two Democratic um, state senators that cover District 105. So um, it's, you know, again, it's a huge honor. And I think that we definitely need um, women's voices and leadership right now, not just in Tallahassee, but in the U.S. Congress. So I'm, I'm extremely excited. I, I have been following Cindy. I have, I have been following you, Cindy. <laughs> and you are just amazing. You're inspiring. And I have so much respect for everything that you do and, and how you, you handle your, your, your candidacy so well. I mean, I was really blown away by the last um, candidate forum that I saw you in. You, you definitely hit the immigration issues um, it just very well that I, I was completely blown away. So oh, well, I'm so you. happy you're in this. Yeah, and I'm happy you're here too. And, and let's talk about immigration first because I think that, um, you know, for me, you know, my platform, I always, you know, I, I got my big three is our water, our health, our community. I rule some of the immigration issues into the our community component of that um, because it has also been a, a part of my work here in Southwest Florida as well. I had just last year um, finished up a project working with uh, immigrant communities through Henry County. Now that's outside of our district, but it's in broader Southwest Florida. I did a piece of research that was funded by the Mott Foundation and coordinated through the Southwest Florida Community Foundation, trying to map immigrant communities around that area, learning, um, not only just mapping, like physically mapping where they are, although we did do physical mapping and I did lose my research team in the middle of an orange field, but that's another story altogether. Um, but we, um, but we were also, you know, looking at where people were connected to and from. So we did some in-depth interviews, surveys, and community focus groups with um, folks around Hendry County. And we found some really amazing things, some things that really dispelled um, the myths that people have about immigrants, that folks are just coming in here, they're fly by night, they're Mm -hmm. terrible people, or they're low educated. And what we found out is that in Hendry County, the people who were in 
migrant, we were, we were calling them transnational pipe, uh, populations because it wasn't just necessarily recent immigrants. It was folks who had strong ties outside of the United States. But amongst those people, they had been here 10 years or more on average. They were people who owned their homes. They were, you know, built businesses and they still had these strong family connections outside of the United States. Many of them still sent remittances back home um, to the tune of between $200 and $500 every other month was um, what the average was, which is, you know, I think a very reasonable amount of, if you think about familial support, and it's not a significant leakage from the community, quote unquote, is what I would call it in economic terms, which is one of the concerns that people have is like, oh, they're just coming here, sending, taking money and sending it all back home. Well, they're taking money, they're coming here, they're a productive part of the economy, they're sending some money back home, but they're also investing it back in themselves, their family and their communities. Um, we found within that community that the largest connection point was Oaxaca, Mexico. Um, and we then started building through the community foundation partnerships with other community foundations and philanthropic organizations in Oaxaca to try to bridge the gap and serve the needs of that community um, as well. So anyway, I just share that because it's a piece of my work that I don't talk about a heck of a lot because mm-hmm. it's just, you know, I've done so much stuff sometimes. That yeah. I got my fingers in everything, but it was a very recent part of my work. It's a very exciting piece of work for me. Um, it brought me into a lot of the immigration circles of uh, particularly legal circles around mm-hmm. Southwest Florida, people who were providing services to immigrants. And it afforded me an opportunity to connect with those organizations and learn from them. And so um, it's, uh, it was a very eye-opening experience. And I, I promise to anybody who's skeptical about this particular issue, just if you talk to people who are in this space like Maureen, you will instantly understand better the situation with the real live people who are affected by immigration policy in this country. So I want to hand it over to you, Marie. Now tell us a little bit about that. So what is it like? What have you been seeing on the ground that really compels you to say, we need to do this different? Yeah, absolutely, Cindy. And and you're right. You know, um, the way that I can describe immigrants is immigrants are, and by the way, I'm an immigrant myself. I actually, um, I was born in Nicaragua and I came to the United States when I was seven years old. So not only do I have the immigrant experience, but you know, I'm, it's also, I also work in the field and I've been, um, in the field for over 11 years. So immigrants and the immigrants that I have seen and that I have helped, they're, they're hard workers and oftentimes they get left behind They're they're ignored um sort of how you know they were ignored in the creation of the COVID 19 relief and you know i thought about it and i said well you know it, it happens all the time it, it, it does mm-hmm. even though we have immigrants that are contributing to the economy that are um, essential healthcare workers that are on the field, you know, in the agricultural and the farm working and making sure that we have everything that we need. And yet they're still ignored. They're left out most of the time. And, you know, I thought to myself, it's okay. You know why? Because we immigrants are very resilient and they will make it work 
however they can with or without um, you know, being taken into consideration and, 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 and they'll do it. Of course, um, I, you know, there were different um, counties and different cities that came together and communities that came together to um, help immigrants with, um, you know, just getting through this, um, this pandemic. But in general, immigrants are left out and they'll, and they'll continue to work and they'll continue to provide for the communities. So, um, you know, that was something that has always compelled me to help. And if there's a benefit that's available to them, I will find it and I will help them um, access that and, and not necessarily um, uh, financial assistance. I mean, immigration benefit for them to be able to um, become green card holders or, um, you know, to stay with their families here in the U.S. Because a lot of immigrants have immediate family members that are U.S. citizens mm-hmm. and that they're, you know, that they're born here and, um, and, and that are also part of society. And my goal is to keep them united and, you know, I'm talking about immigrants that have absolutely zero record, um, that have worked here, paid taxes, and um, they're contributing members um, to, uh, of society. And uh-huh. so this is what really compels me. And I, and I remember my own immigrant story and my mother's immigrant story. She's actually, um, she was actually um, the first one to come to the U.S. She was around 19. And she, by that time, she had already three daughters. Her first one was when she was 16. And she came to the U.S. to build a better life for us, to give us an opportunity. And, um, and I didn't see her until I was seven years old. So she left when I was six months old. And I didn't see her again until I was seven. And, you know, those are the type of sacrifices that immigrant parents make to give their children a better opportunity and it's those are the stories that you hear about um the most when you're you're dealing with immigrants okay so um again they're here they're they're hard workers they contribute to society and the way that they have been treated recently by the administration um is um, like we all know it's just criminal it's horrible. It's criminal. And um, again, I have been doing this for 11 years. I have seen the changes in administration, uh, you know, from the Bush administration, the Obama administration, now this current administration. And I've never been so concerned and filled with, with just a lot of frustration. And um, again, I, I got to the point where I really felt like I couldn't do much anymore as an attorney. And, you know, if I, as an attorney, couldn't do much to help, um, you know, safeguard these, the rights that they had and just help this, this vulnerable community, then who could? Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, that's, that's why I'm here. But yeah, our immigrant community is, is extremely resilient, like I mm-hmm. said, and, and, and they'll make it out of this. They'll make it out of this one way or another. Oh, Yeah. And that's, that's what um, I think people who have not been an immigrant of any kind, they don't have a clear understanding of how these kinds of things work. 
I also don't think that there's, um, well, one of the components for me that I think is terrible about the time and place that we are right now is this lack of empathy for the human experience. You know, that's not to say that every single person who's coming to the United States is coming from a really horrific background. That's not the case right. sometimes. It's really just people who are seeking that better life component. But there is a contingent of the immigrant population who are asylum seekers, who are fleeing, you know, drug abuse and gang and violence. And, and we're going to see more, honestly, with um, as we are shifting in climate change, this is it's a major contributing factor to migration patterns around the world, the conflict around the world. So when I look at things, that's the biggest concern for me. I will tell you, I will even, I'll go a step further, that I am so concerned about the immigration components related to climate change that when I teach climate change at FGCU as part of my global studies class, the, the major focus around it is the migration. That's the way that I get people to understand how it means because, um, and I focus on low-lying islands who have been experiencing mass, yeah. you know, migration off their islands for decades now because sea level rise is real and it happens. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it kind of gets people to get the people component of it because otherwise, you know, some things, they still seem abstract. But it's still hard for people to understand, like, no, you are, like these are people who are, like, uplifting their lives, taking whatever they can carry with them and coming to another place. And it's dramatic. And I think that people, we, we, don't, we don't have empathy as much as I would like to see around it. And I don't think that we really fundamentally understand that. What do you think about that when you think about particularly that most vulnerable asylum seeker population? Yeah, so, you know, the goal, I think, um, for immigration advocates or immigrant advocates is to have a fair and just immigration system. Um, I think that people get scared when they talk about, you know, open borders, which, quite frankly, that's not what anyone is really advocating, because we do have okay. to, um, we do have to think about our security, right? However, the United States is part of, um, you know, international treaties that mm -hmm. where we have obligations to accept um, individuals that are fleeing persecution. And quite frankly, we are we are very much violating some of those yep. um, <laughs> those terms. The Geneva and, Convention, right? <laughs> yeah. And the yeah, right. The 1951 um, UN Convention related to the status of refugees. Mm -hmm. We are actually um, we signed the protocol mm -hmm. and we are under an obligation to not just accept um, people that are fleeing persecution, refugees, but also not to turn them away and send them back to danger, which okay. is what we have been doing under the migrant protection protocols, you know, the stay in Mexico okay. policy. So that's, okay. that's one. The other part of our agreement is that we should not be penalizing um, individuals that are entering the U S um, with, let's say, you know, by crossing the border or using um, false documents, which a lot of them use um, in order to escape 
their their country right because otherwise uh -huh. they really can't and uh -huh. so what we're doing is we're we're penalizing these individuals by um, putting them in detention and prolonged detention I have clients that that are placed in detention months, some a year or yeah. more in immigration detention. And I'm sure that everyone's seen the conditions of these okay. detention centers. And especially now during um, this pandemic, it has it it has gotten worse. And I, I mean, it took a lawsuit for these detention centers to start releasing some of these individuals due to um, uh, issues, you know, related to spreading yeah. COVID-19. And so, again, if, if you don't have these challenges to these policies um, or action from from advocates and, you know, immigration lawyers, we wouldn't be we wouldn't be getting these individuals human rights, basic human rights, getting them out of detention. So, yes, there I, I, as far as from the administration and some of our leaders, we don't have that necessary um, empathy. And, uh -huh. yeah, and we do, we do get a lot of support, of course. The, the, I, I believe the immigrant community has good support um, from strong advocates and of course, um, nonprofits and, and other law firms that <clears throat> are also um, assisting in this, you know, in the battle. But um, I think that we definitely need to make more people aware of what's going on and, and just make their elected leaders find a, a way to create fair, a fair and just immigration system, which we mm -hmm. don't currently have. Yeah. Yeah. It's straight xenophobia and it's, mm -hmm. it's true. Like I, in, you know, I actually have at least one, several of my Republican counterparts running for District 19, they're running on build the wall, which I think is hilarious because we're in Florida. I'm like, where okay. are you going to build the wall to protect mm -hmm. Florida? But I digress. Because um, it's just, it's a ridiculous component for me to begin with. But, you know, I actually, there's something I want to share with people because I sh I've shared it a little bit, but I think it helps to create that empathy. And that's why I started with the empathy discussion on it. Mm -hmm is that because a lot of people in the United States haven't left, because they are stoked by fear, right? There's this, oh, they're coming to get you. And, you know, you had Trump saying, you know, people coming across mm -hmm. the border from Mexico are rapists and thieves and things like that, which is just horrible, horrible things to say about anybody, let alone a blanket group of people, um, just to kind of stoke your base. But I, the reason I, I know in my heart of hearts that it kind of comes down to xenophobia and that it can be done in a different way is because I myself have been a migrant, an economic migrant outside of the United States. And this has put me in a position um, that a lot of other Americans, particularly white Americans, haven't been in. I moved to Taiwan um, as an economic migrant. I went on a tourist visa. And then I work. So what did that make me, Maureen? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so, right, you go over, you're like, you come in on your tourist visa, you get your job. I mean, I was riding, uh, you know, we had all sorts of ways to like up, re up our visa until the, our respective jobs got our documentation, if they even had that, that desire, right? right? 
Um, otherwise, you know, so, you know, I've had this experience of not only going through another country's legal immigration system and going through the less than appropriately documented process of that as well. Um, and what did that mean? Did that mean that I was any less of a person? Did that make me a bad person? Did that make me a criminal? No, I was just somebody who was going to seek a job in another country. And I, there were plenty of people that were willing to hire me, right? That's very similar to the situation in the United States. It also put me in a position out of being the minority or the majority ethnic culture, right? Which is another place where most Americans haven't been, you know, particularly white Americans, right? We're very used to living in this, you know, majority Judeo-Christian um, component where um, we have, uh, we're just, that's like, everybody's very similar and very similar minded to us, right? So, um, you know, experiencing what that is like, I've experienced um, racial, you know, an ethnic based hatred and violence against me mm-hmm. because of this situation. Um, and it's, I, I share with that. I don't talk about it a heck of a lot because I think it ends up being somewhat tacky to have a white person talk about this kind of stuff sometimes. But I think it's valuable to be able to share the experience and reflect back on on just how bureaucratic some of these components that people are fighting about in the you know in the immigration discussion are how they're just kind of these things that are arbitrarily put together by states to protect whatever their particular interests are. Um, and, you know, what it means to be that type of person to go and try and pursue life, job, school, econ- economic development, and personal, you know, income development in another country. Um, and how that doesn't make you a, a bad person. It doesn't make you a moocher. It doesn't make you a, a, um, a burden on society. You know, I lived in the two of the countries that I lived in that were outside of the United States. I had nationalized healthcare, both of them, right? So in the United States, in that context, I would be discussed as the, you know, the leech, you know, trying to benefit from the the great social programs in the United States. You know, nobody in Taiwan said that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Nobody in Japan said that about me. Um, And also I will say that, so I did in Taiwan experience some ethnic, based violence I did experience discrimination um based on these situations because there are cultural issues um and uh it was a very you know interesting thing again to be somebody who had grown up in a dominant culture and move and live into another one so I bring that with me oh the one other story let me just share this one other story and I'm going to kick it back to you Maureen because this is where it's interesting highlighting the differences between the United States approach to um, immigration versus other countries approach, right? So the other thing um, I had experienced was when I was living in Japan um, and I had, well, and actually in Taiwan too, both times I've had jobs there that were not consistent with what my visa allowed me to do. And both times, I had in two different jobs in two different countries, I had an escape plan from my jobs. Wow. And um, in, in, in Taiwan, it was at a school and we were allowed to teach, but not in the kindergarten. So when the, immigri- uh, the immigration 
uh, like folks came up to our school, we, all the teachers who were in the kindergarten had to strip off their clothes and walk up to the elementary school to avoid the immigration folks. And then in Japan, um, my entire, the place I was working was operating as ostensibly like a dance club, not like a, like a nightclub, like a fun time, not like a really dodgy kind of thing that you might've seen about Japan, but like a regular (laughs) dance and like drinking fun kind of club, but they only had a license to be like a sort something else. And, and they didn't have the the appropriate license to be hiring foreigners like uh, me. And so that one too, when they had a raid, they came up, the police came up. We actually had to turn the music down. We had to move the tables closer together. All of the foreign staff had to switch their shirts to like regular street clothes to blend into the crowd. And so both of these situations, okay, like I said, two different countries, I'm on two different visas, right? And, um, you know, had this experience where I'm, you know, would I have been an illegal immigrant? You know, that's probably what I would have been called in the United States context, right? Right. But I will tell you this, in neither one of those circumstances was it ever conveyed to me that I was going to be deported, that I was going to be going to jail, that I was the problem. Both of those circumstances, the employers, my employers, took the responsibility to protect us and themselves. Now, as crazy as it is to flop off your your shirt and run over to another part of the building, right, Mm -hmm. and pretend like you're not working there, there was a different sentiment and approach to how they were treating their immigrant population that seems to be very, very different from the way that we treat immigrants in this country. You know, I'm thinking recently of the raids on the uh, factories, and this was prior to the coronavirus, but the factories that, um, but I believe they were meat processing chicken. Right. It was a chicken processing factory, mm-hmm. right? And what did they do? ICE rolled in and arrested all these folks as their job. And it's a very, very different approach um, than what I've seen in other countries. It places um, the fear on the individual, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the consequences on the individual rather than whom is actually breaking the the law, <laughs> which is the company that's employing them. And um, so anyway, I just, that's, I want to share that uh, as, a, as a story about me that's not as well known because I don't have an opportunity about it. But maybe you can speak to this, Maureen, a little bit more about how, um, how it is that we view this that is, you know, detrimental, particularly when it comes to the corporations that benefit from the labor that migrants offer? Well, the first and best example would be that um, ICE raid in Mississippi, right? So they, immigration was able to, um, well, arrest over 600 individuals. And so that means that this um, corporation, which by the way, was not punished at all from what I understand from my understanding um that means they were using immigrants to um to produce their you know their their items and they were using them for work and I'm pretty certain that they were probably underpaying them um they were probably um not receiving protections worker protections um and I'm sure they were being abused and so you know 
a lot of people are quick to say that, you know, immigrants are the ones that are contributing to low wages, but who in fact is? Is uh-huh. it the employer that's choosing to um, break the laws and basically um, create this very competitive um, working environment where they would rather hire someone um, and pay them, you know, low wage when they're not really supposed to, or is it someone mm-hmm. that, you know, wants to work? And so I think that we definitely have to shift that accountability to employers and people that are doing this. And, and we mm-hmm. haven't, you know, we haven't had them take responsibility for it. And, and it, it's sad because immigrants continue to get blamed for a, a lot of things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm glad that you shared your stories because I feel that it has really given you a very good understanding of what it's like to be in an immigrant's position. And, mm-hmm. and I hope that, you know, people don't have to be in those positions to really understand that, you know, we'll have immigrants and just because they're immigrants doesn't mean we have to treat them poorly and mm-hmm. and like subhumans, which mm-hmm. is what's happening, you know. And again, they're in the U.S. And while some of them have entered um, the country without authorization and, and uh, you know, something that you mentioned during the last time that I heard you speak was that that's a civil infraction. And I'm so glad you know that <laughs> and because it is. Uh-huh. And yet we're treating them like hardcore criminals. Right. We are um, separating parents from their children. We, um, I mean, I've heard of stories from clients, you know, that have gone through this that have told me that ICE would threaten them. You're never going to see your children if, you know, if you don't do this. I mean, there's been a lot of victims of um, sexual assault in, mm-hmm. in ICE custody. And, you know, again, they're, they're put into these overcrowded um, makeshift cells. They're living out in tents. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, the, the conditions are deplorable and, and horrible, right? Mm-hmm. And again, people just turn the other way because they're immigrants. Right. I mean, are they not human beings? Outgroup. <laughs> not us. Not, I, I mean, they don't, you know, a lot of people just really don't care about what happens or what they go through or what they're put through, actually. It's not what they go through. They're being put through this. Sure. They're being yep. put through this by the administration. They know it. I mean, they, you know, everything that the administration has done recently, um, from forcing them to wait out in Mexico to all the different policies, detention policies, is to deter um, immigrants from coming in. But has that really happened? No, it it hasn't, and and it won't because. People would rather go through this in the U.S. than risk their lives back home. Mm-hmm. And that's just the bottom line. Absolutely. There is no deterring a person that has suffered so much that they'll go through everything and anything that the administration can, will and can put them through just so that they can flee mm-hmm. and so that they can find safe space. So, yeah. yeah. So, you know, again, I hope that um, people don't have to 
go through that experience to understand that um, what we're doing to immigrants is wrong. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. I, like I said, I, I just tried to use some of my stories to, pr- yeah. you know, to highlight the differences, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think that one thing that people in the United States do is say like, oh, well, this is what everybody does. Everybody treats the their immigrants like this. And and no, it's not. And yes, immigration is, is it's a bureaucratic process. It is a civil infraction if you don't do it properly, right? Like never for a second as I'm, you know, riding, and this is true, riding on a ferry boat out of Taiwan to international waters and then back <laughs> to get my visa re-verified <laughs> on what we call the visa run, right? Did it ever occur to me or was conveyed to me or did I hear stories about other people being thrown in detention centers or, you know, deported or beaten. You know what I mean? It was just, and if it happened and if they caught you, it's like, Hey, you know, here's a fine or whatever, or we may not actually give you the the long-term visa, but it's never like this incredibly punitive and violent process like it is in the United States. And, and I try to tell the story because of that, because I think we've normalized it. We've normalized the hate against the other because largely because of Trump's, uh, you know, desire to, to use it to bang his drum of fear Mm -hmm. to get people to vote for him. Um, Mm -hmm. One other thing I want to say before I pivot away, we can talk about something else is that I want to reinforce something that I learned through my work with the immigration project. We were part of an international network of organizations that were trying to address this issue. And right as the Trump policies were closing the borders and he had that policy where folks were being forced to stay back in Mexico. It created a humanitarian crisis in Tijuana. And we actually had an organization that worked on that border area um, in Tijuana. So a lot of people would come up through that area and they would kind of stop through and then come into the United States and they would go to their family or wherever it is that their destination was. People never stayed long term there, but when they closed the border and didn't allow people to come in, immediately homeless shelters filled, um, food pantries and things like that were just immediately overwhelmed because people had nowhere to go and they couldn't turn back and they weren't necessarily welcomed by the Mexican government and these service agencies, these faith-based organizations, all of these folks who are the traditional servers around the world who help folks like this, they were immediately overwhelmed. And it was so heartbreaking to hear the stories of the people trying to help folks there and just how despondent they were. And then what happens when you get in that flux, you're out of money, you're vulnerable. It actually, by the way, increases human trafficking, which is like the thing that a lot of the Republicans want to throw against the border crossing is like, Oh, well the border crossings, this is, you know, they're grabbing children and putting them into human trafficking. Well, now that may occur on some instances, and I've seen some credible evidence where that may have happened occasionally, but it's certainly not the norm. And I know from the research that I've done on this in the past is that when people are in those flux positions are actually far more likely to, you know, get snapped up by a Mexican gang and then trafficked from that point. So we've created and exacerbated the problem that many Republicans think that they're solving. Do you want to comment on that quickly before I pivot yeah. to something else? <laughs> yeah, just just very quickly. Yes, it has. And again, the 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 implementation of the MPP 
has created um, or has made, I would say, immigrants into a commodity mm -hmm. um, for gangs to kidnap them and ask mm -hmm. for money from their relatives in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So, yes, they're, you know, they're being placed in danger and kidnappings have have grown and I've had clients that have been kidnapped by gang members. I've mm -hmm. had clients that have been kidnapped and have told me how they were able to escape and how unfortunately a mother and children couldn't. Mm -hmm. And from from my understanding, if if the family members in the US do not pay the ransom, they you know, that family disappears. Mm -hmm. So so yes, you know, it, it's 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 a it's a it's a crisis right now. It's 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 inhumane and and it needs to change. It does. Yeah. Again, that humanity component. All right. So I want to, I know that there's a lot of other issues. I just, it's, I'm so, I was just so excited to have Maureen here with her experience in this because it's something that, you know, we've been so consumed by the coronavirus that like we forget some of these other big issues sometimes in our kind of everyday conversation because we're so, you know, focused on this, this complete calamity that we're experiencing it's understandable i think but i'm so it's so refreshing to have a conversation about another topic that's also extremely important so i appreciate that but i do want to pivot maureen to you to tell us a little bit more about so outside of the immigration issue um, which is clearly something that's very you know top of mind for you very important for your campaign what are some other things that you're hoping to do as a state representative for your district yeah. So um, part of my platform focuses on um, reforming our criminal justice system so that we can finally end mass incarceration um, and that we, you know, we can end the disproportionate effects it has on minorities. Um, and, you know, actually right now in Miami-Dade and Broward, we have the opportunity to um, elect a new um, state attorney mm -hmm. and, after decades of the current um, two state attorneys that have been in the different count in the two counties. Um, so right now we have, like I said, an opportunity to create a more progressive um, criminal justice system that works for, for, you know, for everyone. And, um, you know, the statistics right now are just very staggering on, on the racial disparities in incarceration and um, sentencing and conviction rates. Um, let me just pull up some statistics. I, I actually have some from Broward County and it looks like even though the um, black population in Broward County is about 16%, or actually it's mm -hmm. Florida, Florida overall. The black population is about 16%. They account for um, almost a little bit over 40% of the individuals wow. that are incarcerated. And that's, you know, that's a huge, huge, huge difference. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, and of course, we need to change that. And so I'm hoping to work with not just um, the different state attorneys and the sheriff's office, but also within the legislatures to implement some um, some laws that will you know protect against these these um, disproportionate effects, and so mm -hmm. that we can finally end mass incarceration. We can actually 
focus on the um, uh, pretrial intervention programs and just mm -hmm. um, rehabilitative programs so that we can reduce recidivism. And mm -hmm. I, you know, again, when you have someone incarcerated, their their family suffers too. Yeah. You know, you yeah. may have someone that um, is the sole financial contributor in a family, right? Yeah. And say they're arrested and they can't afford bail because they're indigent mm -hmm. and they don't have the financial resources, then not only is that person um, suffering, but so is their family because yeah. they don't have the, the breadwinner there. And, you know, if they have children, it's, it's worse. So, um, you know, part of what I want to see is, is a criminal justice system that's reformed so that um, we don't keep putting these people in this cycle from um, incarceration to poverty back to incarceration. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, you know, that's something that I would love to see and that I would, I would definitely um, be working with the different offices and also the legislature to see that change. Um, and then, of course, um, I'm also very oh, focused. On mm -hmm. Before you go into your next issue, I just want to say something because there's something that came up in my mind on this. Sure. Um, and I love that you're there and I love that you have the technical expertise in law to be able to really be a valuable contribution to that that discussion around criminal justice reform. One thing that I always think about in this space um, that I know having been married to a criminal defense attorney for 10 years <laughs> is that um, there is a dynamic that a lot of people don't understand about the, the, the legal system in relation to the state attorney, the PD, and then the private criminal defense attorneys. You have to pay quite a bit of money to get a private criminal defense attorney. And the profession, the, the public defenders are way over caseloaded. They have mm -hmm. 80, 90, 100 more cases, you know, that they're trying to deal with. So they usually have very little bandwidth to kind of do it anything above and beyond just basic, basic things. Yeah. They're However, the, yeah. absolutely. The other thing, and this is where I want you to give me just a little comment on this. There's a, there's oftentimes, and I'm glad that there's, um, somebody that's up for election in uh, your area as far as state attorney, because there's also the state attorney side. State attorneys, they move up in the ranks by wins, right? How many people they get convicted, how long, da, 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 da. So there's often almost this kind of like picking off the easy wins against the PD. The PDs themselves will often be like, I can't even defend this person. So off they go. And so there's almost this like commodity trading to a certain extent amongst people who have been arrested within that part of the legal system because they they're just seen as wins or losses on a case. There's a there's a very like, you know, blanket look at what's winnable, what's doable and how you're going to do it. There's a little exchange and that person is, you know, off without, you know, they're sent away sometimes without little more care than, you know, win loss column versus the PD and the state attorney. Um, and, 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 and these are people's lives, I guess, is what it kind of comes down to me. But it ends up being this really, really sad calculation that has significantly negative effects on communities and of people of color. So I don't know, maybe I'm totally off base on that brain, but I just wanted to throw that out there as like a little, just a tiny, tiny bit of like inside baseball and what happens in the legal system that some of us 
think is just this totally just and fair system. Right. Yeah. No, and, and you're correct. You're absolutely correct. The state attorney has a very big role to play in, in you know, deciding who they're going to prosecute. And part of the reform that I want to see is also making sure that they're being held accountable for, um, for making sure that they're prosecuting the right person, first of mm. all, <laughs> because we've yeah. had, you know, instances where, like you said, they just want to um, add to the number of prosecutions that they've done when perhaps they have, you know, exculpatory evidence or um, mm -hmm. otherwise that says this is not the right person, right? So you're not really helping not the community or the victim by doing that. You're just helping yourself kind of like move up. And so I definitely want to see that um, in the laws where state attorneys yeah. will be held accountable for um, things like that. So, um, right. and I think they have one of the biggest roles to play, honestly, other than the legislature, the state attorney and the judges as well. Yeah. Well, it's culture for me too. It's what do you, mm -hmm. what do they prioritize? Um, so anyway, so great. Well, thank you. And oh, there was a second thing that you want to say. And then I want to spend just a few minutes before we go on the out here talking about being a woman candidate here, but you were going to, before I interrupt mm -hmm. you on that point, what was the second big issue that you wanted to bring up here? Well, we can actually move on. I, you know, I was just, I, I'm fine with it. <laughs> okay, talk good. Talk about fe being female candidates during this. Yeah. Let, okay. Great. Let's let's go ahead and do that then. So, so yeah. So I, um, you know, I just I like to have this, you know, experience and you know, thinking from hearing from you on what it's been like uh, being a woman running in that district. I know that you're primary opponent is is a man um and have you you know what kinds of things have you been experiencing do you feel like there's kind of a tide change or do you feel like there's still a lot of people who are very much dismissive of women running for office yeah so i think i would like to start with um the first challenge that i had in running right and that was deciding whether i was qualified to run right and I think that a lot of women um, have difficulty with that. You know, they question themselves. Am I, am I qualified? Am, you know, am I, am I the right fit? Is this something that I can do? And I feel like it's a little different for men who I think may wake up <laughs> one day and say, I'm going to run. <laughs> right? yeah. So uh -huh. <laughs> really, and then I've seen that yeah. happen. And, you know, I had to really... Um, have a good conversation with myself and ask myself, you know, can you do this? And are you, are you qualified to do this? And, and again, I have been serving my community for over 11 years, um, almost six years as an attorney. And I have been representing individuals in my community. And I have, you know, fought against um, harmful policies. I have fought ICE. I have fought the administration. I have challenged just about everything. And here I was, you know, wondering, am I qualified? And, um, and again, that was, I think, my first challenge. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I said to myself, you know, this is, this is what I've dedicated my career to, to public service. And I'm at the point where I need to do more for my community than what I'm doing now. And so I got through my first challenge, right? Mm -hmm. My second challenge 
was um, now getting thrown into, um, of course, the, the campaign world and being told um, that I needed to be more likable and, <laughs> and smile. <laughs> when, Funny, I've been know, told the opposite, by the way. R- you just to prove that, that like nothing head. is ever like you there's never a moment yeah. where women don't get criticized I've actually been criticized for smiling too much wow well I mean you're then according to them you're doing it right because I'm not doing it enough <laughs> and you know it's it's kind of hard to do when you're talking about serious issues mm-hmm. um and again I, I've spent my entire career being someone that focuses on the issues and I'm not focusing on whether you like me or not. You know, I, I want to get my work done and I, I get work done. And so I think that was one of the most challenging things yeah. that has happened to me as a, as a female candidate. Um, and quite, quite honestly, other than that, I think that, um, it's it's been going well i i do believe that it's important for um women to empower each other and you know for the most part that's 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 been happening and i think that in order for us to properly create laws that will benefit everyone we definitely need proper representation in the legislature and in congress um because so far the laws that have been written and that have existed for, you know, as long as we've been a country have did not have the voice and representation of women. Right. Right. So a lot of them really reflect what men have wanted to, um, to do or say. So um, being that we're more than the majority in the United States, I think that we need more women. And we need we need better representation, and not just with women, but also um, we need more diversity and and you know people with different backgrounds. So um, you know, and and I, I guess I'll say this last last thing is that you know as I campaign, I always think about how the women before us had it much much more difficult, right? Yeah. And how they were pioneers and and I, I can't imagine everything that they've they have gone through and you know have and how they've have they've helped us and have paved the way for us to run to and even even with that we still face challenges as female yep. candidates and I think about that all the time I, I do like in 2016 we had Hillary Clinton right Mm-hmm. And how she really opened up the door to have um, at least five female presidential candidates yeah. this this year, and 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 it's great. And I want to see more. I do. Yeah, me too. I agree with that. I I'm so appreciative of all the women's work throughout our history in the United States, working for a seat at the table, making sure that we have the right to vote and that we can continue to advocate for ourselves, our families, and our communities. I, I really do appreciate that. And I just wanted to um, kind of commiserate with you just before we go all the way to the end here, but that I, uh, you know, it's just so funny when we talk about it because it's true, the men in these races, they, it's like they just literally wake up, they're like, of course I'm qualified. 
and they never get the same criticism. I mean, I've been criticized, like us, Helen and Maureen here, uh, for smiling too much or not smiling too much or wearing the wrong size heel or not crossing my legs in the right way or wearing a dress that was this way or that way or I need to look more professional or more casual. It's like every single thing that you do opens you up for criticism in ways that um, men never are. And I'll throw in the added one of me being a, a mom with small children it's just everybody has an opinion on it. I've been asked, so what are you going to do with your kids more times than I think is appropriate as a candidate? Now, granted, I am I'm like putting, I'm saying, hey, I'm a mom because mom is like another part of that representation for me that I think is important. But it's still like nobody's asking any of the other candidates you know, who are men, what are they doing with their kids? I'm still waiting for Dane Eagle to drop out of the race because his wife is about to have a baby. I actually tweeted about that. I said, well, I'm, you know, so unfortunate the timing of your new child coming. I'm sure you're going to be putting your campaign on hold to <laughs> take yeah. care of your new child, right? No, and I put it out there because it was absurd because, of course, no one expects a man to put his life, his career, his ambitions on hold when a child comes into their family, but everybody expects a woman to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and know, I was told that you know it's okay you know if you're running, but before you have kids, great. After your kids are like out of school, that's great. But if you're running while you're having kids, like oh my gosh, what are you doing? It's like this incredibly bizarre taboo. Right. Yeah, and you know, Cindy, you you probably have to work twice as hard at everything that you do um because you know you have responsibilities at home and yet here you are you're you're outperforming and you know again you're working twice as hard all day and all night so so you know it <laughs> yeah yeah i was managed to get the lunch on the table just before maureen and i got on this podcast so the kids had their lunch and i was able to lock the door so they didn't come barging in <laughs> which they usually do um, and, and yes, yeah, so you have to be as a woman, not only do you have to work twice as hard, but you have to be twice as qualified. And this is where I will go out and like, it, it kills me on this, right? I, by far, like I have the highest level of degree amongst the field of candidates for mm-hmm. Florida Congressional District 19. I have in direct service to community organizations here, not political, by the way, because mm-hmm. there's a yeah. bunch of folks who had run as politicians and they've done stuff that they quote for their community, right? But it's very different um, than what I've done. So I have 11 year track record of working for this community. And what I mean by that is like teaching yoga at the soup kitchen, doing case management for homeless services, homeless families, right? Fixing the houses when something breaks in them for those same homeless families, right? Coaching brand new organizations, who help autistic families grow, coaching them from infancy into being a fully functioning organization, you know, and that's the work that I've been doing on the ground for, you know, just because I care. Right. And, you know, I have to compete and expect my democratic component jumped in this race, despite losing to a man who didn't even campaign in 2018 Mm-hmm. He jumped in because he thought that he was more qualified for me. We, right. I got my PhD the year after he got his master's and he's old enough to be my dad. Yeah. 
So not that age or any of that stuff allows, you know, for discrimination. And I 100% believe that anybody can be a representative. But that qualification piece that women struggle so much with, I am like, I am abundantly qualified. You know what I mean? I have publications. I'm a professor. And it's like, boom, boom, boom. And people still look at me and they're like, well, you know, could be better. I'm like, literally, like, what else could I do? How many more books do I need to publish before you think I know what I'm talking about? How many more years? Because I'm already, I'm already way ahead in the metrics on everybody else in this community and this district, right? What else do I need to do? And so for me, I always go back to like, it's not, it's not the qualification. It's, it's something else that's holding people back. And so I'm hoping that I can still keep pushing that part out, but it's, it kills me sometimes. I just want to be like, but, but look, 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 (laughs) you know, and it never seems to matter sometimes, but anyway, you know, we could, we could go on this diatribe forever, but I do want to wrap because I'm sure Maureen, there's so much stuff that you have to get back to for your campaign and your work. But before we leave, I just wanted to have you tell us how can we help you? What do you need and where can we find you? (laughs) Well, you can certainly find me um, everywhere. <laughs> I, you know, before we went on lockdown, I was in Collier County. Oh my gosh, there were weeks where I was there three times a week. Um, and again, my my district is very broad. So, um, you know, I, I would find myself in Broward and Miami, Collier. Now I'm just um, doing the best that I can, you know, with this new reality and campaigning under this new reality. And so... Um, you can definitely check out my website at maureenporras.vote. That's M-A-U-R-E-E-N-P-O-R-R-A-S dot vote, V-O-T-E. Um, and, you know, I would love for everyone to just, you know, join in the cause and help get more pro-choice Democratic women elected. Um, we yep. need representation. And um, I feel that uh, women have this um, innate ability to really um, represent everyone, not special interests, but, you know, the needs of the community. So if you want to see that change, um, you know, I urge everyone to join, to join us, to join us both and help um, spread our message and, and just, you know, reach out, reach out to us with whatever ideas you have and any issues that you think may be um, something that we should consider if we're not, you know, already doing that. And, and I think that would be great. That'd be very helpful. So absolutely. So go ahead and visit Maureen at Maureen for us dot vote. She is also on Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Perfect. And um, where can they donate to your campaign? It's also on my website. It's MaureenForras.vote. All right. Perfect. And don't forget, because that's what grassroots candidates absolutely need. We need love, support, retweets, follows, and a little bit of, you know, dollars in our coffers, because that's how we get our voice out there, especially for Maureen, who's in such a diverse district with multiple media markets and um, needs to be able to get that uh, message out there that there is a strong, qualified, pro-choice female Democrat running in that district. And that that is something that we absolutely need in this era. So thank you so much, Maureen, for joining us here today. I really, really appreciate the conversation. 
looking forward to continuing to connect with you to fight for Florida and serve our communities. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Cindy. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us here on this episode of Dr. Cindy Speaks. Go ahead and uh, view us next time. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes, keep listening. We have some great episodes coming up as well. Some fantastic speakers coming up to share with us about messaging in this time of coronavirus and to help get that public good messaging out. So look forward to that. Stay tuned. Check us out wherever you find your podcast. You can find it published on Podbean, on my website and Apple Podcasts as well. Thanks so much, everybody, for joining us. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dr. Cindy Speaks. If you'd like to learn more about her campaign, go to cindybanyay.com or connect with her directly at vote at cindybanyay.com. We love connecting with people. Contents of this podcast are paid for and approved by friends of Sandy Banyay.